everybody back to the Movie Scramble podcast. I am your host, Thomas, and I am joined by John today. John, how are you? Very well, yes. So another lovely day in isolation, and <laughs> it can't get much worse than it is now. Well, it could, I suppose, because it could stop pouring with rain or snowing or some, something stupid like that. But no, it's all good. Nothing to complain about. And if I did complain about anything, it would be kind of like a first world problem, really, wouldn't it? <laughs> Even if it did rain or snow, that might not be a bad thing as it may keep people in the house. You can only hope that it will maybe snow in various states in America at the moment because you want those people <laughs> to stay in. Yeah, if it, if it happens to snow in Jacksonville, Florida, I don't think anybody outside what looking in will complain. No, no, not at all. But that's for uh, our forthcoming political podcast, obviously. Yes. <laughs> Trump, Trump scramble. Yeah, it's quite. You may have noticed that it's just me and John today. Mary is absent. And that is because we're planning and discussing the long-talked-about, much-rumoured Hellraiser special. This podcast has taken on a mythical-like presence, much the way the Stinker Cut has often spoken about, often teased. The difference is, this podcast will come out before the Snyder Cut, unless... Mm -hmm. They can't be bothered editing it. But I'm sure that won't be the case. But yes, Hellraiser is a very famous and at times infamous horror franchise that spawned 10 movies since 1987. There's a lot of movies to talk about. We're only going to discuss the first three, the original trilogy, so to speak. I know these films inside out, but I did go and rewatch them in preparation for this podcast. I'm glad I did because there was a couple of things I'd forgotten about. John, had you seen them before or was this your first foray into the world of Hellraiser? It was my first foray into the world I thought I had seen at least the first two, but when I actually sat down and watched them, I realised I'd never seen them at all. I'd only seen maybe still images and references to certain characters within the franchise, but I surprised myself by the fact that no, I hadn't seen it. Considering I'm a fan of Clive Barker, I was surprised that I had actually overlooked it. I'm assuming that you've seen you've seen them multiple times, though. Pretty much, yes. The Hellraiser films are not featured on my Only Watch Once list. Yeah, well, you do have a very nice box set, which is the box itself, which I, I looked on quite enviously when you posted pictures of it. That looked very nice. That's great. That was a gift. I already had the movies individually, and my mate got me for my birthday one year. And I, nice. even, though I had, even though I had the films, I was like, I don't care because this box set is just beautiful. Mm. Uh, for those that don't know the box set, the box, the Hellraiser box set is the first three movies and it's formed in the style of the box from the movie that opens the gateway to hell, which I'm sure we'll discuss in detail. I must warn you, as we're talking about the three movies, there's going to be some spoilers here. They are quite old. We know we try to avoid spoilers, but like I said, we're talking about three movies. It's going to be hard to talk about the second film without giving me something for the first film and so on. So please be warned if you haven't seen these movies, you may have something ruined for you. However, if you haven't seen these, these movies by now, I don't imagine you'll listen to this podcast because <laughs> it's a bit niche. Beyond any terror you have imagined, <laughs> a nightmare. Unlike anything you have witnessed, is born. Because within these walls, the unholy is unleashed.
let's talk about the first movie. Released in 1987, it saw Clive Barker directing it in his directorial debut. The screenplay was written by Barker as well and based on his own novella, The Hellbound Heart. It tells the story of a man called Frank who escapes hell and is resurrected in the place where he died. His brother and stepsister have since moved into the house. The stepsister Julia, who Frank had an affair with before he died, he managed to convince her to bring people back to the flat for him, kill for him so he can feed on the blood of these poor victims and help fully resurrect himself from a bloody husk that he appears at the start of the film to hopefully becoming a full man again. John, knowing what you know about heroism from popular culture, when you watched the movie, were you surprised at the plot? I was completely surprised at the plot, basically because what I had been fed from, as you say, from popular culture and from what I had actually seen in terms of the franchise, it was a, a bit of a revelation to me. It was a horror film, obviously, but it didn't pan out in the way that I thought it would. It was very much focused on the family and it was focused on how these people all interact with each other rather than the characters that we have come to see actually depicting the franchise. Now I'm trying to be a bit circumspect here obviously because we will talk about these particular characters going forward. But yes, as I say, was surprised and I was pleasantly surprised at that because I thought it was a particularly good film. I enjoyed it. It was pretty interesting in terms of the story itself. I like the dynamic between the husband and wife and the, the brother and obviously there was a daughter involved as well, their daughter Kirsty, I believe. And I thought, yes, I, it, it works very well. It's very contained. It's part body horror and part haunted house film and I couldn't really fault it in terms of entertainment value. What did you think of it? I was surprised as well. I mean, I could just basically your thoughts were exactly the same as mine when I first watched it. I went into this known about Pinhead from popular culture and he's the main focus of the franchise from the posters to... It's the first image you think of and it's a very mm-hmm. striking image but in the first movie... The main villain is played by Frank Cottons, played by Sean Chapman and Oliver Smith. Did you know that two different actors played them? I did. I could tell the difference between the two. They do have fundamental facial and body differences. Yes. But it was done for a particular reason because the character who played skinless Frank looked particularly good with the makeup and the effects on him. He did skinless very well, basically. (laughs) I mean, who knew you could get a skinless actor? Well, we don't need to find out any more, do we? <laughs> but yeah, the movie, you've got Frank and Julia. Julia is played by Claire Higgins, and she's absolutely brilliant in the role. She has a very like snobbish, posh, English demeanour about her. She's got almost a stage-like presence, a very thespian presence to her. And although she's at the start of the film, she kind of seems like just somebody who's been inadvertently pulled into Frank's scheme. She's quite evil in her own way. She's got a very sinister and dark side to her at the unbeknownst of her almost hapless husband, Larry. Yeah, you do kind of feel sorry for him in a way because the initial premise of the film is them moving back into the old family home in order to try and salvage the relationship. And it's only when they actually get back into the home and Julia starts going through the various rooms that you actually get a flavour of what actually went on before in the house, her affair, and how that actually 
affected her and affected her marriage because it was actually before she got married that she had this liaison with her future brother-in-law and that basically set her up in the path that she was eventually having to take when they all moved back to the house as well. It was good. She was a very strong character in this. I really thought that her performance was the, the best out of everybody and I especially liked the fact that she was really rocking the sort of full 80s businesswoman look with the silky blouses and all this sort of stuff and the big hair and all that sort of stuff. It was unashamedly 1980s fashion. There wasn't any notion of maybe toning it down so that it would have it wouldn't date it in any way. But yeah, it really worked. Yeah, definitely. You kind of mentioned that the, the movie is very much a product of its time and not in a bad way in terms of it, it could age badly due to the themes of that, but it's very much almost a period piece in a way. Mm-hmm. As you say, it doesn't try to hide the fact that it's clearly set in the 80s. What it does seem to do in, a, in an interesting production point of view is watching the movie, it's initially clear that it's supposed to be set in England. Yeah. They mention the fact that Larry mentions to Julia that hopefully that's her back in home turf. Mm-hmm. And yes, so you, you make the assumption that's the move to Britain. Uh, Larry, obviously, American. His daughter's also American. As the movie goes on, some of the characters seem to be English, some appear to be American, and it doesn't become clear anymore where the film is set and unfortunately you know the Michelle John but it wasn't a deliberate production technique by Clive Barker to make the movie set in an unknown place. It was supposed to be a British English horror movie mm-hmm. and the studio in post production tried to make it more appealing to American markets by overdubbing some of the actors, which you can tell. You can tell the dubbing it's, it's not great. But I don't think it takes anything, anything away from the movie. No, it doesn't take anything away from the movie at all. It's still totally enjoyable. Yeah, I did realise, based on some conversations that we had previously, and also it was fairly evident that there, there were a few accent changes within the film itself. But that time I was totally engrossed in it anyway, so it didn't really matter in terms of the enjoyment of the film. If you watch it a couple of times, then you, you start to pick up on these things, but just for a sort of casual first viewing, it didn't really make any difference at all. Yeah, it doesn't take anything away from the movie in any way. It's just it's quite interesting, the fact that there's kind of lost in translation aspect that people forget that here was as a British horror movie. Even though on the IMDb and Wikipedia pages, it does say that it's a British horror film, which slightly changes as you go through the various listings for the rest of the films. They do change what type of production it is. It's not necessarily all British anymore. I'd like to talk about the opening scene of the film, which obviously features the opening scene where Frank is getting possession of the box and then opening it in the, the very sparse room that he's got. What did you think of the the way that they did that in terms of the effects of the film? What did you think? Did it work for you? It did. I really like I mean, it's a film that was made in 1986 and it's a budget of $1 million. It's even by those standards, it wasn't exactly a big, massive Hollywood blockbuster. The CGI at the time had been limited. The fact that they concentrated on practical effects for it, it was probably as much as a, a sign of the times and a money thing more than anything, but I think it really worked because it still hands up, it still holds up. There's something mm-hmm. very stripped back and I thought it was simple, but no frills about the special effects. And yeah. a lot of it is kind of shot in darkness and it kind of hides the more 
quaint some of these special effects they had to hand but yeah i think it really works well yeah oh definitely i thought the practical effects really stood up basically because it's physical it's something you can actually see and something that the actors can basically react against in camera that they're not having to look for sort of post-production yeah there was a few minor special effects bits in it which did really date it but apart from that i was i was super impressed by the the way that they managed to do the scenes where they had all the hooks and everything i thought that was very very good indeed yeah when, when he opens the box at the beginning and the, the chains fly from it and you, they catch into the skin and pull mm-hmm. it's really uncomfortable and as you mentioned it's a practical effect so this isn't like cgi blood or a computer generated like torso you can actually see the skin pull and bleed and you're just like oh frank's agonizing yell from it is, is, is it's a very powerful mm. scene and really sets the tone for the rest of the movie. We should mention obviously that the, the whole point behind him obtaining the box is because he is looking for something beyond the pleasures that he has experienced in the, the real world. He's basically got bored and he's looking for something else. He's looking for some sort of different type of pleasure. And unfortunately, what's, what he finds is the Cenobites who are particularly adept at pleasure and pain at the same time. They've gone beyond just sadomasochistic pleasure. They're, they don't differentiate between it. It's all one entity now. So he's, he's kind of got more than he, he bargained for when he was looking for this. And obviously he pays the, the price for it as well. Yeah, very much. Yeah, let's, let's talk about Cenobites, actually, since you brought them up. Mm-hmm. Described as angels to some, but demons to others. Yes. Mentioning Pinhead, obviously. In, in this film, he was known as the lead Cenobite. He wasn't even given the nickname Pinhead yet. Played by Doug Bradley, who is known for this role in the same way that Robert England's known for Freddy Krueger. He brings a gravitas to the horror movie villain that I don't think we'd really seen in a mainstream horror at this point. And most kind of horror movie villains of this era, we are Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, big silent hulking monsters. And I know Freddy Krueger spoke quite a lot, but it was more wisecracking. There was a dignified portrayal of the least saying about Doug Bradley here, and I'm sure I read somewhere before it was based on the idea of the old Hammer Horror and before that Bill Gorsi Dracula, where you have a really evil character, but doesn't mean he can't be he can't have he can't be well mannered and dignified. The way that they used the character in the film as well is really good because it's very spare. They don't have him on screen for an awful lot of time. It must be only about maybe 10 minutes total in the film, maybe 10, 15 minutes at the most. And he doesn't say an awful lot. It's more about, as you say, his gravitas, the way he stands in. And you get this voice that comes out of him as well, which is just fantastic, this sort of deep tenor. And it, it speaks without any sort of emotion or anything as well, so it adds to the character as well. And it works really well in the first film because of the mysterious element to it. You don't know anything about these characters. In fact, in the first film, they say that they are travellers from another dimension. They don't really mention hell an awful lot in terms of where they come from and anything. Obviously, we'll, we'll get into that as this goes on and the story gets expanded and everything. But that was quite interesting as well. 
There's a, an awful lot I, I thought was particularly interesting because they set certain things up in this film, the, as in the, the Cenobites and various other elements of it as well, which they then need to try and work into the other films somehow. And it's nice the way that they kind of crowbar these elements in, but again, we, we shall talk about that in a few <laughs> minutes. Overall, I thought this film worked very well. The casting was excellent. The production was really good. Now, Clive Barker himself, as you say, he hadn't directed a movie before. He particularly wanted to direct this based on the way that some of his previous material had been treated. Do you think he did a good job as a director? Being one yourself, obviously, you should be able to comment on this. I think he did a great job. And he mentioned in his notes, uh, looking back at the movie, the production of it, he said he had a lot of fun making it. Now, anybody mm-hmm. that's made a film, especially for the first time, fun isn't a word that comes into it often. And he said that the, the casting crew couldn't have been any more patient and helpful with him, which really helped because, obviously, these guys been about him, were always a lot more experienced than him. And it, you can understand why people would lose patience with him. He said that somebody could have showed him a plate of spaghetti, told him it was a lens, and they went, yeah, I'm not even going to disagree with you. It was mm-hmm. so, it didn't have the experience or knowledge. And that makes it even more interesting. It just shows you how good his crew was that they didn't just leave him to flounder. It sounded like a real collaborative effort to make this movie. And it wasn't a long shoot. As you mentioned, it's almost like a haunted house movie at times. It's mostly shot in a home and that has its own difficulties regarding blocking shots and getting production equipment in. You've got a special effects aspect of it, getting actors made up in makeup for hours on end, and I think he done an amazing job, considering it was his first movie. Mm-hmm. Everybody involved should be very proud of it. It's got an incredible legacy, and for people that kind of haven't seen it and think about the Hell is a franchise and think, yeah, it's just another stupid horror movie franchise, go, go back and watch this one. If you haven't seen it, I'll go back and watch it as well, because it really does stand up. It's an incredible movie. One of my favourite horror movies. And I remember... Yeah, I'm not surprised. I can totally agree with you there. It does really stand up as a film on its own. It surprised me just how good it was, which may not be something that we'll be saying as we go along, but you never know. Yes. <laughs> so the first movie, John, do you recommend it? Yes, definitely. It's one that's out there. It's really easy to pick up on DVD, and I'm sure it's on various streaming services of some form or another. I haven't actually looked at it, but... Yeah, it's definitely one to search out there. Yeah, really recommend it. Excellent, it's the same from me. Which takes us on to Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Now, this movie was released only a year later than the first one came out. This just shows you how impressionable pictures were with the first movie. And I think Doug Bradley even mentioned about how the producers were in contact with him to start filming the second movie. And he's like, the first one's not even out yet. But they were just so impressed with the rushes. Mm-hmm. And quite notable, they were very impressed with him. And he became quite a focal point when it comes to the marketing as a character that would become known as Pinhead. Interestingly enough, if you go back to the first movie, Doug Bradley didn't want to play Pinhead. He didn't want to wear all that makeup. He felt it was an actor. It was important for him to have his face seen. And actually had to fight with Clive Barker, who cast him as Pinhead. And Doug Bradley wanted to play the part of the removal man. Such things. Movie franchises are built, eh? It is, yeah. But Hellbound Hellraiser 2, Clive Barker does not return for directing duties, although he did write the story with the screenplay by Peter Atkins. The, the director of this movie was Tony Randall, who was the editor 
of the first movie. So we've still got a bit of a link here in terms of the production crew. The vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. The fear is reborn. Because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound. Hellraiser 2. The story falls on quite soon after the first movie where Kirsty has escaped Frank and Julia by trading Frank to the Cenobites in exchange for her own life and Julia is betrayed by Frank at the end of the first movie and killed by him. This leads us to Dr. Chenard who hears a character and a half um, played by Kenneth Cranham. He is a doctor who owns an asylum and he purchases the mattress where Julia's body, this is where I've got a little bit of continuity, it says in the movie, it says in Hellraiser 2, the mattress where Julia died. But if you watch the first movie, it's not. But let's just forget that wee detail. <laughs> That's where Julia died and he then starts feeding his patients to the mattress in an attempt to resurrect her as he's been doing a lot of research on the puzzle box this held dimension and is quite consumed by it. Kirsty finds herself a patient at this asylum as, as you can imagine the events for the first film she's a bit kind of screwed up and she finds herself there. Now as the doctor manages to get a portal into hell the movie then shifts focus from his asylum to us seeing hell for the first time as imagined by Clive Barker and the movie plays out from then. What I will mention before we talk too much about the production or this plot, I can't get away from the fact that at the beginning of this movie, it's clear it's no longer Britain. The cops are carrying guns, it's hints that it's maybe New York, and <laughs> it just kind of tickles me a wee bit because I forgot about that when I was rewatching it the other day. The big shifts in location, but John, what was your thoughts on the Hellbound Terrors or two? It was a change in the films themselves. Basically, I watched the second one pretty much about three hours after watching the first one. So the first thing you did notice was the the change of location. What I noticed soon after that was the amount of money that had been put into this film. Obviously, a far bigger budget on it, which meant for better locations. There was more variety in the actors and the production itself is just larger. It was a different type of film to the first one. first one you could regard as a very British horror film, and that's not just the location. There's a whole history of British horror films, which that nicely fits into, whereas the second one was more a generic Hollywood-type film. It definitely had its moments. I, I liked the way that they were able to explain some of the things from the first film and expand on it, and like you say... They introduced the, the idea of hell, which is accessed via the portal, and how there isn't just one puzzle box anymore. Now, obviously, there's just the, the one puzzle box, but you, when you're in Dr. Cranham's private library, there's all these different boxes and everything as well. I liked it. I thought it was good. I thought the, the Doctor character was the strongest of it. He's obviously a very good actor. He's another one of these Shakespearean actors, so he, he brought a certain amount of gravitas to the role. 
and the part of the doctor was very good as well because it's this guy who's obsessed with the the whole idea of the portal into the other realm the same way that frank was in the first film but he's obviously spent his whole life doing research on it and really wanting to find out what it was all about rather than wanting to get into it for the sensory pleasures that supposedly this realm is able to offer you so it was something slightly different he was coming from it from a more scientific background he's wanting to study it he's wanting to understand it but yes he was still wanting to get something from it it worked really well what did you think yeah i agree and i think this is a movie that's a lot better than it's getting credit for and especially as a sequel it still kind of tries to kind of keep faithful to source material in a way that obviously expands on it and explores more of the world of Clive Barker's original novella and sometimes we can add too much backstory and origin to something it can ruin it we just moved us quite a lot as the origin of we discovered that quite early on the open scene actually the pinhead and our centipedes were once human and they've been transformed by hell and going to the hell dimension itself and finding that they've got their own god there called leviathan and the hell's called the labyrinth it does cram quite a lot of information in to a very short runtime but i don't think it really overwhelmed in sense of that visually it worked really well it's it's very dated some of the the effects but one of the most striking images that left me with the movie was the skinless julia wearing the white suit yeah yeah that was very good it was very well done again practical effects and it was a a different actor that played skinless julia to regular julia just because of the way that they looked with the prosthetic and the the makeup again yeah i thought it was it was really well done i like the fact that you could tell right from the beginning it was a, a different type of film it was they obviously set out with the intention of being bigger they wanted to as you say cram more stuff into it and just make it a, a bigger production now you got that right from the beginning because the the score kicks in and it's like one of these old universal monster films it's a very dramatic very bold score you're expecting like thunder and lightning and everything during the the title music and everything it just kind of set the tone like you said they do add in an awful lot of elements but they don't really explain them it's it's very clever that the way they do that they just say oh by the way hell's a labyrinth and there's a god there they don't say where it came from why there's a god in hell why it's a labyrinth in the first place the the elements themselves add up but they they don't detract from the story itself the story is a pretty strong one actually it's a good idea rather than just trying to rehash the initial story they use the character of kirsty in order to sort of transfer into a whole new different type of story without her being the the center of it for the whole film because then that would have been more of a, a rerun of the first film it's something slightly different because you're concentrating on julia's character and you're also concentrating on the doctor's character as well yeah definitely and i think the character of Kirsty is a welcome return i know andrew robinson who played larry was offered to return to the role there's different kind of conflicting reports on that where he wasn't interested or the script just didn't really call for it bear in mind he is dead but it's hellraiser doesn't really matter it was good to see claire higgins return as julia as she then becomes more of a villain this time around after being to hell and coming back it's yes. just even more evil 
And you've spot on when it comes to kind of Cranham as Dr. Channeled and just how he kind of brings this, do I keep using the gravitas, but it's the best word to use. It does bring this gravitas to the role and really elevates what could just be a knockoff sequel mm-hmm. to another level with his scenes and some spoilers in this. So please don't be offended if we've written anything for you. But when you see him as Dr. Channeled, he plays the role very seriously and very... As you say, Shakespearean, he's clearly a thespian stage actor and he brings that presence to the movie. When he's turned into a cenobite himself, he hams it up so incredibly well. The only <laughs> way that an actor that good can do and get away with. Yeah, there's uh, an awful lot of really bad medical puns towards the end of the film where he's on the, the rampage and that becomes a bit of a feature, I think, the, the they obviously do that again in the, the next film when we speak about that in a slightly yes. different way. But yeah, it, it does totally ham it up. I liked the, the interplay between the Doctor and Julia as well. I was reading that Clive Barker was actually looking for the Julia character to be the, the focus of the franchise going forward. But the audience reaction was more towards the, the Pinhead character. And the actor who played Julia wasn't particularly interested in taking forward that role. So it was the, the focus was put onto Pinhead an awful lot more. We should talk about how the Pinhead character, obviously this is the first film where he's actually called Pinhead. And also he's in the film an awful lot more than he was in the first film. Do you think that was a good thing or do you think it was a bit forced? No, I don't think at this point it was forced uh, because he's it worked well for the plot. You only ever seen him in the movie to further the plot along. I felt that worked. Uh, obviously, beginning of the movie, you see him as Captain Elliot Spencer in his old life, open the box for the first time. You see him being transformed into Demon Minot's Pinhead. Mm-hmm. You see him later on in the movie. It's when Tiffany played by Imogen Borman under the suggestion of Dr. Channard. She opens the box. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense you're going to see him returning the, along with the Chatterer, Butterball and the female Cenobite. And these are characters we remember from the first movie. So that made sense. And when Kirsty bumps into Pinhead and the Cenobite's in hell, it was that throwback again and that linked to the first movie. It wasn't a lot more, but I don't, I don't think it felt forced, to be honest with you. I think it really helped in relation to the plot. Mm-hmm. Did you think it was forced or...? No, no, I don't think it was. It was more of a natural progression. He was introduced a bit more. As you say, he was giving a wee bit of backstory as well in terms of his human form as well as Cenobite form. And it was more clear in this film that he was the leader of the Cenobites as well. So it made you curious as as to where they came from and how he actually did become the, the leader of them. Now, that's never really gone into in any depth but it was interesting to see that they took that from sort of human form into Cenobite because that played quite a, an interesting part in the final third of the film. Change this dynamic and the way that the film played out in the end because if you get maybe about halfway through the film you kind of got an idea that there's going to be some sort of confrontation towards the end. Now I'm not obviously giving too much away that's fairly standard within pretty much every film not just horror films but because they had introduced this human element to the character they were able to change it up slightly make it a wee bit more interesting make it so that you didn't really know how it was going to play out. You had an idea, obviously, but 
it didn't play out exactly the way I thought it would because of that, because of the, the backstory and everything. It tended to just add just that wee bit more. It's, it's a very clever device that they used in it as well. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that given the Cenobites a backstory and explaining their origin, even though for others it was very, very briefly, but it, it didn't take away any from, didn't make, didn't make them any more menacing, didn't make them any more evil. No. It just kind of added in this little extra bit of saying, oh, well, they were they were also human. That's, what they, that's how they came into being. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it harmed, harmed the movie in any way. As we know with many other movies, you can just start going too much into a backstory and creating an or- origin and it just doesn't work. But I think it worked well here. I like that the movie had its own also uh, re-emphasised the the rules of the Cenobites and as Tiffany opens the box and they're ready just to go to, go to town on her basically and Pinhead says no because although she opened the box physically it was channeled it desired the box to be opened so they spared her yeah that was quite interesting mm-hmm. they let her be yeah there's it's almost as if they they were they were more interested in the people that were interested in them because then they, they take greater pleasure in actually the, the torture of them because they know that they're there for a reason rather than this innocent girl. I like the fact that the, this girl was part of that as well. She, she was in the asylum because her mother had problems with her and all she did was try and solve puzzles all day. Now that fitted in very well with Channel's desire to get the box open. He wasn't physically able to do that himself, so he made use of her in order to do that. I thought that was a, a clever wee use of uh, an additional character. It definitely added to the whole film rather than detract from it. It wasn't just a, a, a character as a plot device. It was it was used quite well here as well. Yeah, definitely. What about the the look of the film itself? Obviously there was a, a lot of similarities between the first and the second film in terms of the production. They used some of the same type of sets. They, were, they went back to the house, obviously. To me it seemed uh, a very different type of film. The way that it was shot was slightly different as well. There was a couple of like quite effective handheld tracking shots when you were going into the doctor's house and following him through this beautiful, well-appointed modern house up into his, his library. That worked very well, and then obviously because they thought it worked very well, they did it about two minutes later <laughs> uh, within within the hospital. I said, "Oh, we'll try this shot again in a different with a couple of different characters." But it, it showed the differences between the directorial styles. Obviously, Clive Barker was first-time director, so. Even though it worked and it was an effective film, it didn't have a lot of flair in that way. This director tended to use a wee bit more of his experience in putting these shots together and trying things in slightly different ways. In terms of the, some of the, the scenes where people are getting devoured, things like that, were, were done in a slightly different way as well. It made good use of sort of practical effects again. And I, I, it did mark itself out as a different film from the first one. And that helped it because then, again, it wasn't a direct copy of the first film. You see that all too often that the second film in the series is pretty much the same as the first one in the way that it's it's visualised. And that just bores you after a while because you are looking for a progression, you're looking for something new. This one tends to do that. Yeah, it's very much just kind of that way. It's typical of a sequel, do the first and did, but just do it bigger. Yeah. Although this does a lot of things bigger. It, it, just, it doesn't just rehash the first movie. It doesn't just tell the same story again, which is interesting. If you look at the opening scene, it's very similar to the opening scene of the first movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very different movie. It's a very different film and how it's done. And 
I like it. Yeah, there was a certain amount of continuity that I found that it did a particularly creepy sex scene in the second film in the same way that it did in the first film. The first film obviously was uh, between two humans and apparently the, the sex scene had to be cut down because they had made it a lot more graphic than the censors would allow. There was a certain amount of BDSM that was involved in it. But the second the second film just went totally overboard with the, the way that they did that. It's just it's something you just have to watch yourself just to, <laughs> to get a real flavour of what the characters... It, it, it does say quite a lot about the characters and the way that they actually did this scene, but it is very much of the time that they, they had this extended scene as part of the film. It, it's completely unnecessary. You get there's a sexual tension there. You don't actually need to see as much as you see. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, kind of like regarding the first movie and the scene that, that was kind of cut down for it was a, it was a spanking scene mm-hmm. and they were allowed I think it was like two spanks but not a third one or like yeah. so many so many thrusts during the sex scene and they were saying have you seen the rest of this movie I'm pulling for part by chains and <laughs> you're upset over a, over this yeah there was a, a trade-off apparently because the they had they were allowed two thrusts but not three but the censor says look we'll cut out the third thrust but then you can have the flick knife scene instead so they, they, were, they allowed a murder rather than somebody going up and down once for about three seconds so there you go it tells you an awful lot about the censors at the time doesn't it i, I think they're still the same to be fair any other thoughts on highways or two before we move no, on no no i think we've, we've fairly well covered it. I liked the film. It was a different type of film to the first one, so it was enjoyable, and it kind of set things up quite nicely for going forward as well, which was quite clever. But obviously at that point, because they had two films that had been produced and were obviously successful, then they were obviously looking to the future as well as sort of dealing in the present as well. Yeah, very much. you recommend this one, yeah? Yes, definitely, yes. Yeah, I would do the same. If you enjoyed the first one, definitely check out the second one. It's worth watching. Which takes us to 1992. Now, it's interesting to get the first one the second one released back-to-back years, despite not being filmed that way. It took a further four years for another movie to be done. And interestingly enough, as a different director once again. Anthony Hickox takes over from Tony Randall. And Tony Randall was still involved. He went and wrote the story, along with Peter Atkins, who wrote the screenplay. Clive Barker's involvement in this movie is very limited. He's essentially an executive producer, and name only. He has very little creative input to the movie. If the second one is very different from the first one in terms of tone and production style, three is an even bigger leap. In Hellraiser 1, Clive Barker showed you his vision of a private hell. In Hellraiser 2, he took you on a journey inside the Inferno. Now, the terror returns in mankind's final confrontation with evil. And this time, it's going to be Hell on Earth. (laughs) Yeah, quite... Hellraiser 3 subtitled Hell on Earth is the third installment in the movie. And it does lead on from the end of the second one where Pinhead has now been imprisoned in a statue and he resurrects himself by absorbing the life force of unlucky humans the same way. A lot of movies have done. 
this time though, the focus is very much on Pinhead and what's very noticeable about the first two movies, there's not a big body count, mm. especially by I mean, Pinhead himself, barely kills anybody in the movies, especially in the first one where obviously Frank and Julia are the focal point, they're the main villains. In this one though, this is a sequel I think that injects the pop culture mythos of Pinhead, what people think the Hellraiser movies were about to begin with. Mm-hmm. We've got Pinhead resurrected by, with the help of a nightclub owner, J.P. Monroe, who is a piece of scum, basically. He's, he's not a good person. He's a womanizer. He's, he uses people. He owns this ridiculous nightclub that just couldn't exist in the real world. <laughs> it's totally mental. It could be the labyrinth of hell itself. And uh, Ashley Lawrence's cursor doesn't return this time. Instead, Pinhead's main foe is Terry Farrell, who plays Joy, a reporter who's bored and um, reporting the same boring stuff now and again. I mean, she finds out a little bit about the heroism mythos and the puzzle box. She ends up in way over her head, as you can imagine. What was your first thoughts watching this, John? Now, I've seen this movie plenty of times over the years, and I couldn't really tell you my first thoughts on it, but yourself... It was a total change in direction for the franchise. It was nothing like the first two films at all, and it kind of suffered because of that. The way you're introduced to the primary character, he was just just horrible. And it's the whole feel of the film is different. It doesn't have any real interest in the characters outside of the reporter, the nightclub owner, and Pinhead. Everybody else is just there as almost like plot devices. They don't have any interest in developing these people at all. And it's a bit cardboard cutout sort of characters as well, which is a, it's a real shame because the story itself is a reasonable enough one. But as you say, this is the film that really sort of cemented the, the mythos around the, the Pinhead character. And it completely changes the way that this character reacts. There's no need for this character to behave in the way he does, because in the first two films, he was all about elongating pain. He always talks about pulling people into hell and exploring them for decades. Now, he doesn't do that in this one at all. It's it's a completely different take on the character. And it actually shows that the way that the the franchise was going, they were starting to focus more on this iconic character rather than the story itself, very much to the expense of the story, because they obviously saw round about the, the other film franchises that were doing pretty much the same thing. It was all focused on a particular antagonist rather than the stories themselves. And I'm sure you you know exactly what I'm saying because of some of the other franchises that you watch and the the quality dip in these films. It felt as if it was a a bit of a dip in terms of the production values, in terms of the cinematography. It just just wasn't as interesting or engaging as the first two films. Yeah, pretty much. And this is a movie and it becomes something that the other two movies were and it becomes a slasher movie. You mentioned yourself that the character of Pinhead changes a lot during this. He's not interested in torturing people anymore. The nightclub scene, he just goes on a rampage and kills more people in that one scene than the first two movies, the entire body count, I believe. It just seems like a very different take on the franchise. From a plot point of view, I'll give them benefit of the doubt on how Pinhead changed based on the fact that Pinhead has been separated from his human self. Captain Elliot Spencer and has just become a manifestation of Spencer's id, for lack of a better 
term so he's just a pure personification of evil mm-hmm. and although the human side of him didn't really kind of balance any kind of goodness in him maybe that had an impact on it this is the only thing i can really think of uh personally i think i just wanted to run the body count up yeah there, there's a real change in the way that the character itself was actually put forward if you think about it in the the first two films pinhead and the rest of the cenobites very much reacted to what was going on they weren't aware that frank had come back in the same way that they weren't aware that julia had escaped from hell in the second one so they were very reactionary they relied on the character of kirsty for instance to lead them to frank in the first film and they relied on people opening up the gateway in the second one in order to be able to get out and find who they were looking for in order to do it but now in the third film pinhead can read your dreams He's, he's right in there, he's getting into people's heads and all that. Now, if he could do that before, why did he have the need for actually having characters at all? It was just a, a fundamental change in the way that this character actually came about, and it didn't work very well. I was quite perplexed when they started showing scenes from Nam, you know, like something out of Platoon <laughs> or something like that, and then they did some World War One stuff as well. I was like, what the hell is going on here, you know? It just it didn't really, and it didn't really work. And Terry Farrell who is a, a, a pretty good actor, she was awful in those bits. Because yeah. she was standing there like in her nightdress going, Daddy, Daddy, is that you, Daddy? And, uh, all hell's going on around. And they're all like, you know, shouting, you know, keep away from the tree line and all this sort of stuff. And you're going, what's, what's this got to do with anything? It just felt really sort of tacked on in order to try and give the Porter character a bit more depth. And it just didn't seem to work at all, you know? Yeah, so I agree. And it's... You look at the first movie, it's more or less confined to that house. Mm-hmm. The second one is the asylum, although they do go to hell, and it's this big sprawling labyrinth. The maze-like quality of it adds a claustrophobia yes. to it. Whereas in this one, you've got Joey running down the street with the center of each chaser, and cars are exploding, and there's like fire. Yeah. Like the cops came out with a gunfight between the cops and the center base, and it's just like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, that was a real mystery. I was sitting watching it with my son, and he'd obviously watched the first couple with me as well. I must say, he's, he's 22, it's not like I was sitting there with a four-year-old or anything. I must, I must emphasise that, if social services are listening. And there was no reason for anything to explode, because we'd never seen anything like that before. And again, that whole sequence had the reporter's cameraman changed into a Cenobite, and he came out with all these bloody awful <laughs> movie related puns and are you ready for your close up and all this sort of stuff and it's just it was just awful it was terrible and there was no tension that's the thing you you're you're looking for a wee bit of tension especially in a sort of chase scene in a horror film and you weren't getting that it was more like a sort of secondary lethal weapon type of action yes. scene than a horror film scene that's what it's like, and you say, if Pinhead's kind of got these kind of powers that he can invade dreams and he can blow cars up and stuff, I'm like, why is he even bothered on chasing this person? Exactly, yes. It was always, always a wee bit of a, a bugbear for me with certain characters in films that they're obviously very powerful, almost like so, you know, in, in a way that they, they can't be stopped, yet they're really stupid at times. They make sort of fundamental mistakes, and he was obviously just toying with the reporter here, which you can understand because they, they do actually address that at one point because 
the final scene where Pinhead and his human counterpart meet and he says, ah, yeah, I knew you'd, you would play with us, obviously, but there's a certain amount of interaction there between the two and the, the part of their psyches are sort of linked still, even though they've been separated. So they know which, what each other is like. So it did kind of explain that a wee bit, but not to the extent where you think, yeah, I can forgive this. It's, yeah. It was, just, it was a, just a bit too much, I must say. And again... There was another completely gratuitous sex scene here. <laughs> For you know, you you know that uh, J.P. Monroe is a horrible character. You don't need to see him abusing some poor girl to <laughs> to reinforce that. You know, he, he was a dick before then, and he was a dick after then. You didn't need it, and it was purely there just for the sake of having a sex scene in it. I think the fact as well that makes that sex scene a little more ridiculous, just to emphasise how much a prick he is. He's smoking yeah. a cigarette during the whole time. <laughs> I don't know why I just felt like do we, do we need any more reason to hate this guy interesting <laughs> enough the actor that plays him Kevin Bernhard uh, mm-hmm. he's went on to a fairly successful screenwriting career alright okay. he's got a lot of screen uh, script doctoring credits for like Rambo movies and stuff like that more, to be fair more the kind of recent Rambo movies but if you check his, his CV there's a lot of movies he's worked on you'd recognise and I've seen and probably like it's I find yeah. that quite interesting because let's be honest, his mo his main talent here just certainly wasn't acting. No, you mentioned no. the character of Doc brings the camera head centre bite. And that guy's just terrible the whole way through, unfortunately. I don't know if he was an actual an actor or not, but he's got the puns and we mentioned Dr. Channard having puns, but they were hammy and it worked. Here it didn't. It just was like ugh. It was forced. You could tell it was forced. And if a better actor had delivered the lines, it may have been a bit better. But no, it just didn't work very well at all, I'm afraid. Also, there was a marked change in the way that they actually brought the effects to the screen as well. There's a lot more CGI and special effects rather than practical effects. There's still with elements of the practical effects, but there was a, a noticeable increase in the, the CGI, which really dated the film as well. It didn't, Definitely. didn't work as well. No, mostly in that nightclub scene. Yet again, that is just like... In fact, do you actually think this may have been the first film I've seen in the franchise? It may have been... Mm. So when I watched this, I'm just thinking this is how his films are. They're just crazy hack and slash yes. uh, movies. And then you obviously see the first one, as we've discussed, and it's not the case at all. There's a lot more pinheading at this time. And Doug Bradley has more of a starring role than he has in the previous movies. I, I do I do think he's probably the only good actor in this movie. And he's struggling with a script that has some terrible dialogue. Because of his portrayal of the character, he becomes a bit more hammy at times to help deliver this dialogue, which is a bit ridiculous at times, and make it more, make it as menacing as he can do. Most notable is the scene in the, the church, which is totally unnecessary in my opinion, not because I'm offended by it, I just didn't do anything to the plot. Yeah. And he goes in and he's, like, he's quoting the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite, yeah. And it's just, like, absurd, but I think he managed to pull it off, just... It couldn't have been easy for him. If you think about the the way that he was introduced into this film, he was in a statue. (laughs) And maybe the first sort of 15, 20 minutes of him being on screen, he's only able to act through this hole in the statue. And it is very weird. Because at first you're thinking, oh, it's kind of creepy. But see, after about 10 minutes, you know, in the statue, you're going, oh, should we just come out of that? (laughs) I've kind of had enough. But then when they do come, it does come out, you're kind of like, maybe we should go back in. (laughs) I've 
it's almost like a metaphor for the franchise where like keep the movie contained keep yeah. Pinhead contained don't work he's a genie in a bottle for lack of a better you know that's the thing it's like you, you open the lamp and mm. unfortunately your wishes do come true but but it's, it's a case of be careful what you wish for in these cases, especially in the case of Frank and in the first movie. Whereas in this one, it's just innocent people that are getting slaughtered who had no <laughs> relationship to the box. As much as I don't, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poor script. The dialogue is terrible at times. It does have some of my favourite heroes are. It's my favourite lines from the franchise by Pinhead. There's a scene, he's got kind of back and forth with Joey who is not holding her own from an acting point of view. But he, he, he shouts at her, don't debate with me, girl. Just come over here and die. We still have the option of doing it quickly. And I'm like, that's yeah. brilliant. That's just a great line. And up until that point, he's been a lot more kind of playful with her. And he just yeah. snaps. And then he goes back and he's like, oh, spirited. And it's like, it's that whole point of cat with the string idea of her. Yeah. And again, maybe reading too much into it, adds to the idea that he's playing with her and taunting her rather than just killing her and taking the box off her that's the whole idea as well in the point the box had to be given to him that was obviously for plot reasons there was no because he could take it at any time really when he actually does eventually get the box why did he not do that at the start there was no logic if he had those powers well not so much when he was in the statue obviously because he still had to consume human blood in order to take form again but again that doesn't really make any sense either because why should he need that? Because he's not human in any way. He's a, a Cenobite, so therefore why does he need any sort of blood? It's only in the first two films it was the people who were human need to consume flesh and blood in order to basically regenerate themselves. So that was a kind of a, a, a strange one. It seemed to have been done just so that they could have a couple of slasher moments in the film, which I suppose when it comes down to it, they can change whatever the hell they want. They can sort of twist it and turn it, re-emphasise certain parts of the mythology and everything as well. So I can understand why they did it. Yeah, I mean, they do reference back to the second movie as well. It's interesting when you see the flashbacks and how different the movie looks. And you mm-hmm. see the pillar coming from the, the, the bloody mattress where Julia mm-hmm. died at the end of the movie. And here the pillar looks very, very different. And they kind of skim over the details and have it solidified in the stone. And yeah. that's known as the Pillar of Souls in the franchise. I thought that was a wee bit of a strange one as well, because you had to get right up to the pillar before you can actually go absorbed into it. But then certain elements, they were like firing out chains from it, and they can catch people in the same well, Why do you need to be so close to their chains? Can just yeah. pretty much catch people who are at the other side of the room, whereas they had to entice people to get really, really close to it. When Rose girlfriend for instance she had to be standing right beside it in order to go absorbed and that whole sequence that's a, a, a very good example of very dated cgi the way that she got absorbed into the the statue it, when you look at it you go oh dear that doesn't work very well at all sorry well don't kind of taken out the moment here Just, it's obviously it's, it's primitive stuff and it doesn't hold up because we've seen so much better since then but even if somebody went back and fixed it i don't think it would have much effect in the overall film you would still find other things to be a bit critical about yeah it, it does it's interesting that the second movie was turned around so quickly 
and this one had a lot more time, yet this feels like the one that was rushed. Yeah, definitely. They just didn't seem to have the ideas behind it in the third film, and I think Clive Barker probably did himself a favour by not being wholly involved in it in terms of the writing or anything. Yeah, and that was probably the problem as well, the fact that he wasn't involved with it, so he couldn't give some ideas to, to help explore the movie. I mean, it didn't really tell us anything. We didn't already know from the second one. Aye, right enough. It was just a movie for the sake of a movie more than anything else. Like you say, it was more of a slasher movie than anything else. It was just trying to make a bit of money on the back of the first two films in any way that they possibly could. And I think because of that, it didn't do as well as a lot of people were hoping. It just didn't seem to have the same traction that the first two had. And I think part of that is to do with the fact that it wasn't quite as strong as the the first two films in terms of rewatchability. Because that's a, a big part of horror films. It's people who go back and watch these things time and time again, very much like yourself, and enjoy them time and time again. Yeah. It, this one just doesn't have that appeal, I don't think. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if, I think Clive Barker himself was very critical of this movie as well, especially the ending. I just don't think he felt that it worked and the low-budget effects. And that's him talking about it at the time. The low-budget mm-hmm. effects, and as you mentioned, they're not really kind of dated well. Would you recommend it, though? I don't know if I would, actually. I can see why it's there. I would recommend it as part of the trilogy because it very much follows on. There's strong themes and plot elements that follow on between the first and the third film. So, yeah, for completeness, yeah, I would would recommend it. As a standalone film, I think by that point, if you go into that film on its own without seeing the first two, you would be kind of lost. You kind of wonder why certain things are going on. And like you say, you would think it's a a pinhead film or all of them would be that same sort of idea. Because you've got to think, if that's what he's like in the third film, what's he going to be like in the first two? Wow, it must be really kind of something special. So yeah, I'd recommend it with reservations, just based on the fact that you should really see the first two before then just for completeness what were you yeah I mean it's, I've also had a soft spot for this film because as much as I think the the acting's atrocious the, the script's poor especially if it, I don't think it's a good movie I do like Doug Bradley in it I think mm. it's very very good that soft spot did harden a little when I watched it the weekend though and oh. yeah I don't know what it was there's something about it I didn't enjoy as much as I had before so I expected to come in at this with a yeah I'd recommend it why not it's a, it's a fun horror sequel but to be fair I'm going to agree with you in the sense I would recommend it with reservations watch it by all means especially if, if you've enjoyed the first two just be wary <laughs> you, you might not enjoy it yeah different type of film it's not really very similar to the first two but yeah it's for completeness sake which let's face it we're all about that aren't we we want to watch as many of these things as possible indeed and with three films down we've got another nine to go nine to go sorry no sorry seven to go if mm-hmm. we're planning in the whole franchise <laughs> yeah i think we could probably do those in at least could probably get away with two podcasts i think yeah. with other ones i've i've only watched one more film i know you've seen them all apart from the very last one but yeah, I think this might, if if we get some feedback on this one that people actually enjoyed what we're talking about, I think I'd be quite happy taking it forward. Put it this way, I'm going to watch the rest of the films anyway, even if we don't talk about them, because I'm quite interested to see just where this franchise goes, because I think it was after the fourth one that they stopped getting cinema releases, which is never really a good sign for a film. But it doesn't mean it's a necessarily necessarily a bad thing or necessarily a bad film, but chances are there will be. Pretty much. If you've enjoyed this hell as a podcast, again, please let us know and we'll definitely do another one. 
as John said, he's going to watch movies anyway. I've seen them, so quite happy to talk about them. Although I think it'll be a very different podcast in terms of John's thoughts on the movies. <laughs> Should we do a sequel to this ourselves? That was our thoughts on the first three Hellraiser movies. Please let us know your thoughts on the franchise and anything Clyde Barker related at social media at Movie Scramble on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can contact us by email at podcast at moviescramble.co.uk. John, is there anything else I've missed here? No, just the usual. If you like what you hear, let us know. We're always up for doing listener requests. This is obviously something of a wee bit of a departure for us. We're covering uh, a franchise. Happy to look at doing other things if anyone has any suggestions. Not that we're sort of bereft of suggestions ourselves. We're always coming up with stupid ideas for things to talk about. But yes, anything that you can think of would be duly considered and if it's any good then we'll talk about them and if, if your suggestions are rubbish then we just won't mention them and we'll pretend that we never <laughs> actually saw them <laughs> pretty much as a, as, a, as a benefit of social media you can pretend to ignore stuff <laughs> the only thing i also mentioned with clive barker is i'm a massive clive barker fan he's a legendary horror novelist and john you mentioned yourself before we started filming you've read a lot of his works and you like them He's not yes. known for being a big massive, he's not known as a director, but he's only directed three movies, including Hellraiser. He's also directed Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions, which are worth watching as well, to be fair. They're, de- they're decent movies. Mm-hmm. And yeah, please I let see. us know your thoughts on anything we've just discussed. And if that's all from me, John, is that all from you? Yeah, that's everything. Thanks a lot. See yes. you later. See you later. Take care. <laughs>